And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Welcome to the Grandland Network. My name is Andy Greenwald. Great day here in our New York studio because I am joined by a president, the president of original programming for AMC and Sundance TV, Joel Stillerman. Welcome. Thank you very much. I hope that the the pomp and circumstance has been to your liking. Uh, we don't get too many, you know, uh, executives in here like this, but we, we we're glad you took the time. Yeah, I uh, I uh, return the favor by bringing the uh, you know the the least amount of my security <laughs> details. So I appreciated uh, that. Know. It's an intimate space. Yeah, it's a good thing nobody knows where we are. <laughs> That's right. Until well, until we broadcast. <laughs> um, Joel, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about uh, all things AMC, all things Sundance. Um, I know that uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. You're going to announce some news that is near and dear to my heart Thursday, so we're going to talk about that um, in a moment. But first, I feel like people should know a little bit more about you. Where do you come from before joining uh, AMC in 2008? And I only want to preface this by saying, whenever your name has come up in conversations over the last year with people, not even people who work in TV, people seem to know you for a long time, and they get a look on their face that implies maybe they played a poker game with you, or they went to a bachelor party, <laughs> or they owe you money. People have known you for a while. Uh, well, that's because uh, I've been around for a while. Uh, I'd love to tell you I was, uh, you know, uh, some overnight sensation, but, uh, you know, it's been decades of, uh, of hard work to climb the mountain. Uh, no, look, I've had a really uh, fascinating and, and somewhat unconventional journey to this place. Uh, not, not entirely. It's, it's not like I was in the construction business or anything. Uh, but uh, I started uh, years and years ago when I first came to New York uh, uh, in uh, uh, commercials, like so many people did. Um, but, you know, as fate would have it, and you'll start to detect the pattern of sort of happy accidents along the way. Right. Um, it wasn't just any commercial company. It was a company uh, called Broadcast Arts, and, and they were really, you know, at that time, and we're talking, uh, I'll just, we might as well get my age out of the way right here. I was, this was 1984. I just graduated. Uh, you know, they were sort of at the forefront of mixing live action and animation which was a much more labor intensive and mm-hmm. exotic art form uh than uh you know than it is today. It was pre Roger Rabbit. Oh yeah, well, yeah. And so uh um uh, not only was I sort of exposed to this very interesting uh, type of filmmaking and this very specific kind of production work, um, but I met all these unbelievable fine artists who were really populating that place to sort of, you know, pay the rent so they mm-hmm. could go home and paint or sculpt. And then the sort of seminal moment at uh, Broadcast Arts um, that sort of set the stage for the next chapter was um, – I, I won't give you the whole long version of the story, but the short version is uh, I was literally cold calling the networks uh, in 1984, all of whom had uh, children's programming departments. Right. So another little glimpse into how far back it all goes. <laughs> and uh, and there was a, a guy uh, at uh, CBS who I got on the phone and uh, and uh, I said, you know, here's what we do. I'd like to send you my reel. And they called back and they said, have you ever heard of Pee Wee Herman? And oh. uh, I will just confess, at that moment, I had not. It was not that long after the HBO special. Yeah. And I wasn't in L.A. I wasn't hanging out at the Groundlings. So I did not know Pee Wee. But, you know, I came to know, you know, who he was quite well. And that studio ended up getting the contract to produce the first season of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Wow. Um, Which, let, let me date myself here, that show was huge as a child growing up. Yeah. That was uh, incredible. It was easily... It was so far beyond everything else that was on for kids at that time. It was so smart. It was so engaging. It was so weird. That was a real turning point. Uh, you know, a, a, a definite kind of watershed moment for, you know, for, for kids programming yeah. and for TV in general. And, and just in terms of the technical side of, you know, filmmaking, you know, mixing all those mediums and, uh, you know, uh, exploring animation and that sort of guerrilla style. Uh, and Pee Wee, obviously, you know, Paul is uh, just one of those um, genuine, you know, geniuses who, you know, had a vision. And, uh, you know, what's fascinating is to go back and look at the HBO special and see how it started yeah. and it was not an obvious uh, sort of you know leap to say this could actually be kids appropriate it was obviously originally you know straight up satire and yeah. very subversive and, and dark um, and you know kind of you know borderline you know uh, just you know edgy it was but, edgy yeah uh, that's a good word for it. So long story short, uh, that was a chapter in my life uh, that ended when I left to uh, pursue a career in directing music videos. And for a few short wow. years, I really thought, uh, man, it'd be great to be the next David Fincher. And uh, and this is 
when you say that, you're talking David Fincher directing, like, he directed, uh, what's one I'm thinking of? Did he do Express Yourself? He did, yeah. So you're, so you're not saying I want to be the next guy to direct The Social Network. No. You want to direct the next Madonna video uh, yeah. that incorporates, uh, you know, intense uh, modernist imagery. And- That's right. Yeah, no, it was, now we're in the late 80s, MTV sort of, you know, still in the heyday. Yeah. And uh, two years of doing that, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I have a lot of uh, music videos from incredibly obscure bands. That you directed. Uh, yeah. You got to give me. You got to give me some here. You know. Uh, all right. We here, just, here. I didn't know any of this. We, this could just derail our entire conversation. <laughs> the uh, I'll have to come back for chapter two. I the, think so. Uh, the, the middle years. Well, the prequel. We'll do. Yeah, the prequel. The prequel. So uh, I. Uh, the, this is a great story. The first two music videos that I directed. I was still uh, on staff at this company, Broadcast Arts, um, were for a uh, hip-hop artist, a a very kind of influential uh, producer named Mantronic. So if you were around in the early 80s and the mid-80s for, uh, you know, uh, the New Music Seminar and and, uh, there was a great event uh, that was uh, used to be held uh, at various places or in and around New York called the DJ and MC Battle for World Supremacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very humble name. Very humble name right uh you know not uh not a nod at all to what you know hip-hop would become in the future and uh he was a a really really phenomenally talented producer he had a a a rapper uh with him uh named Ture. they were on capitol records Mm -hmm. and uh uh, you know, I, it, why I, I can't even remember actually how I ended up directing this music video, but it was the first music video that I ended up producing. There was a guy at the label at the time named Tim Carr, sort of a seminal figure in, uh, you know, the early days of music videos. And, and Tim Carr said to me, a, you know, not hip hop, you know, Jewish white kid, you know, recently transplanted to New York, you know, who knew very little about, you know, sort of even the origins of hip hop at that point. Uh, his words of advice to me, which I took literally, were if you want to have this video, you know, sort of work, he wasn't concerned at all about the concept or anything. Right. You know, he said, just get this guy Fab Five Freddy in the video. And of course, I knew I knew nothing of Fab Five Freddy. I would come to know him very well, you know, in another chapter of my life. But uh, but uh, I literally tracked down Fab, who was not hard to find in the downtown scene. Yeah. And if you go on YouTube and you watch a video uh, for an artist named Mantronics, a song is called Simple Simon, first thing I ever directed, and you'll wow. just see random shots of Fab <laughs> hanging out in a Jeep on Crosby Street uh, between uh, between Houston and, uh, and Bleecker, and... Uh, and and I, you know, it was not quite the uh, the the missing link to uh, you know hip hop credibility that I thought it would be. <laughs> but it's a good video. I'm proud of it. That's terrific. Yeah. So how do you go? And I I'm going to hold you to the sequel because I feel like please. each one of these stories, there's a footnote that could go on for another podcast. Yeah, please. How do you go from pursuing a career um, directing and and on that side of the creative uh, business to what you ended up doing at AMC. There's, that's a huge gap I know we're talking about, yep. but there's an enormously creative element to programming. But how do you make that transition? And so how, how here's the, here it is in, uh, you know, three, three short steps. Okay. Uh, music video directing and lack of success therein <laughs> okay. leads to uh, a staff job at MTV. Okay. Uh, under the guidance of two people, very special people to me in my life, a woman named Judy McGrath, who was mm-hmm. the creative director at the time, went on to run the whole company, and uh, Doug Herzog, who's still there, yeah, uh, running Doug. many networks. And um, they brought me in. I started running all their uh, music programming uh, or, you know, the, the production around their music programming when they were still a music channel. I was there for six years. By the time I left, it was really, you know, very much in transition to an original programming-driven network, right. um, but fascinating time. 89 to 95. I left in 1995 to start a um, feature film company with uh, a a young director named Ted Demme. And Ted and I met at MTV, became very fast friends. Um, Well, Ted was the original director of Yo! MTV Raps and is credited very much with with bringing hip-hop to right. a mainstream audience through right. that incredible show. That's right. So Ted uh, Ted, uh, and another gentleman named Peter Doherty, you know, really sort of created Yo! And then, Speaking you know, of Fab Five, Freddy. There you so go. Freddy comes back into my life along with Ed and Dre, along with You didn't with leave hip-hop. him in the Jeep on Crosby Street that whole time, he, I hope. Uh, you know, Freddy took his own path, <laughs> yes, which did. was legendary and continues to be, by the way. He's yeah. still a, a vital part of the, the New York art scene and just a, a guy who, you know, if you're uh, a fan of, you know, New York over the last few decades, you know, there's got to be a chapter devoted to him he's just he's sort of at the crossroads of so many of these weird things uh and um 
but Ted and I really became very fast friends. We uh, we we really uh, sort of realized that we were going to be a you know potentially good team when you know each of us sort of inspired the other to uh, figure out you know new and exciting ways to sort of exploit I won't say abuse but exploit our MTV business cards. Yeah. What sporting event do we want to go to? Let's yeah. go to the Super Bowl. That's a great <laughs> idea. We have MTV business cards. We can get there. Uh, Ted left to make a couple movies after which uh, he and I started a company called Spanky Pictures mm-hmm. and that was the shift for me from uh, you know non sort of scripted uh, you know, storytelling to scripted storytelling. And I spent the next 15 years of my life between Spanky uh, and um, which was a company that, you know, I think I'd, you know, still potentially be, uh, you know, talking to you as a, you know, participant in if uh, if things hadn't ended tragically for, yes. for Ted. Terrible loss. Um, and, uh, and then I worked for a company called Walden Media uh, from day one. I was there uh, to run their uh, uh, development See, and production. And this is a remarkable transition. Now, for, first question, were you in New York for the, the Spanky years, or were, were you out in L.A.? I have never left New York. See, again, this is I an entire— I want some credit for that. This is another podcast. This is a life hack podcast yeah. where you tell people who want to work in the entertainment field, myself included, how you can avoid ever leaving New York. Um, yeah. So we'll come back— Not easy. So, again, so this is—we now have the next six podcasts lined up. Um, <laughs> uh, the— with Spanky Pictures, I always associate Ted Demi um, working very closely with Dennis Leary and with uh, Greg Dooley, who's one of my favorite musicians of all right. time. And it was this was this part of was this the crew, the creative crew? Uh, the, well, there was a whole you know uh, crew of people. You know that uh, you know Ted was really an amazing talent magnet. Yes. Uh, you know, I would submit that he was you know an incredibly talented director whose best days were yet to come. But sure. you know, he really was, if nothing else, a huge talent magnet. Looking back at the Yo days and how he sort of you know managed to uh, you know make himself a vital part and a really important part of that community. Who's uh, So Dennis came about because we all went to see uh, No Cure for Cancer when he brought it back to New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a whole other story about how that show came to be but you know when Dennis did that show up uh, we all went to a small theater on 42nd Street fell in love and of course Ted was the one who said you know took took the leap from we love this guy to you know let's just put him in front of the camera and see what he can do and that's where all those great black and white uh, you know Dennis Larry image spots came from the, the, the twist from passive fandom to actively doing something seems like such a minor part but it's actually sort of key to what anyone in your business can and should do right? it's you know, it's a it is such a great point, and again, you know, a fascinating. It was a uh, I've learned that moment, you know, over and over again, and and you know, forced myself to be a little more entrepreneurial. But but that's so true. I mean, and again, Ted was a great example of that, and there are many out there. You know, that idea of I love something to, you know. I see what this can be. Here's the circumstance right. to put it in. Yeah, and it's the, not necessarily the thing that I saw that I right. loved, but, you know, it can be something else, you know, right for, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And Ted uh, and Dennis obviously went on to, you know, collaborate on a lot of things, including The Ref, a great right. movie. Uh, now, Walden is a very different sort of company. Yeah. Yeah, I went from producing movies about blow and poker to, uh, you know, uh, coke dealers and poker players to, uh, you know, to family movies. To a place where you can't say either of those words, I would imagine. Uh, right. Neither one of them would have fit nicely into the Walden, uh, to the Walden world. Um, That's remarkable. So what, what projects did you work on at Walden? Uh, well, uh, a number that are really near and dear to me. I mean, the first project that we made at Walden uh, was a script. We didn't develop it. The script had been kicking around for a while, but uh, it was a movie called Holes, based on a great uh, seminal YA book uh, by Lewis right. Sacker. Uh, that that Keira Knightley was in that? No, that's um, that a uh, great cast, starting with uh, the I'm first like movie uh, featuring Shia LaBeouf. Oh, um, sure. Okay. I, kn- I knew some... A uh, 29-year-old starlet was yeah. in that movie. Yeah. So Shia, uh, when, when we lost Frankie Munez uh, to a movie called Agent Cody Banks, uh, some of us were sort of smitten with Shia. But, you know, uh, this this kid, co- you know, uh, 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 Frankie was, you know, sort of the, the thing at that moment yeah. from Malcolm. Uh, so, you know, just another one of those happy accidents. But great supporting cast. So uh, Sigourney Weaver. Okay. Um, uh, John Voight, 
uh, Tim Blake Nelson, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, probably a few that I'm forgetting. But uh, uh, so that was the first movie. Uh, and then uh, we really kind of oriented that whole company around a very simple premise. After about two months in a conference room at the whiteboard, we ended up with, you know, award winning YA literature written on the whiteboard. And mm-hmm. we went on a buying spree and bought Holes. We bought Bridge to Terabithia. We bought The Giver. Uh, 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 there's a whole list of Newbery winners that, you know, that we that we bought because um, that was a space that remarkably was, you know, sort of, uh, you know, struggling for, for yeah. oxygen in the movie space. Um, and then really the turning point was uh, we spent about uh, a year trying to convince the C.S. Lewis estate to sell the rights to the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, to a company that had never made anything at that time. Right. So, and successfully. Successfully, yeah. Um, so this is already a remarkable career, and you're doing all this, and you're not working actively in TV at this point, but obviously you're aware of what's been going on in, in the scripted space in television. Um, when you came to AMC in 2008 which is a really interesting time to arrive at AMC because, um, correct me if I'm wrong with my timeline, but for the majority of my awareness of it, AMC was a a channel on the dial, sometimes in the 40s or 50s, and there would be good movies on it, and that would be it. Uh, Mad Men premieres in 2007 and completely changes the conversation and the identity of the network in a radical way, in a way that I think is probably still the gold standard for what a channel can do if it hits with a show. Yep. Um, completely remade its identity and it's in the public perception of it. You arrive in 2008. Tell me about the company that you arrived to, the network. What is it? Where is it going? And what can you bring to it? Uh, well, that's a great question. I mean, what it was, was a company that made uh, prior to my arrival and by people who, you know, are, I still consider to be, you know, smart and now valued, uh, you know, uh, uh, peers of mine, um, you know, it was a company that that made a decision uh, at a point in time, probably going back to, you know, mid 2006, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and the first thing they did was Broken Trail, by the way. That's right. Um, But they they made a decision that um, uh, they needed to be in the original programming space. Uh, just as a sort of long-term hedge against some of the trends, uh, most of which have come true, by the way. So very prescient to be able to look that far the, out and this say— This does not get enough credit. Yeah. Because I think that what we're seeing now in 2015 is, the, as you said, this is where the trends are pointing, which is if That's you right. don't have an identity, if you don't have a catalog um, behind you, a, repu- a, a, a relationship with audiences, you're going to be left behind because That's we're right. headed towards an a la carte future, towards an over-the-top future. And if you don't have an identity, you can't coast on what's called carriage fees anymore. You can't just exist on the dial. That's exactly right. And again, you know, uh, whether how much we get into the, the sort of granular business of it all, suffice to say, they knew uh, that things were changing. And they knew, to your point, that, uh, you know, the people who uh, were not, uh, you know, considered vital um, might, you know, be roadkill along the way. Yeah. And they were, you know, committed to not be that. But what was really the stroke of genius was, you know, had you looked at the cable landscape at that point, you would have looked at some of the players, many of whom are still, you know, mm-hmm. up there hovering in the top 10. And you would have thought, you know, you would have applied the the the, the chance that you would have come to the conclusion that you should sort of jack some of the models that were already working very well out right. there, which were to say, you know, we're not quite network, but, you know, we're still focusing on broad, broadly appealing programming things that sort of feel like maybe they could be on a network but they're maybe they're a little serialized like a usa usa right usa's program i mean this i can say this you maybe in the business you can't but usa's model and i thought this was a brilliant one for a long time was remember tv remember remember nbc in the 80s we'll just do that and you know but it'll be sunnier with more handsome actors and and, and it worked. Uh, worked very well. By the way, it still it's, you know it still works well. Everybody's you know dealing with unique challenges. But at that moment, uh, it would have been a completely defensible position to say. There's a few of those people out there doing it well. Uh, you know, we can probably either steal a little market share from right. them or, you know, create our own market share because maybe it's not fully saturated yet. But instead, the people who ran the company at that time said, uh, you know, let's double down on distinction. 
Uh, let's double down on passion. Let's double down on things that, uh, you know, you really can't get anywhere in the ad-supported space. It's not like, you know, AMC, you know, invented great drama on TV. There had been some great dramas, you know, throughout the history of television when it was back, you know, as a sort of broadcast medium. Um, you know, uh, there had been some excellent dramas, you know, on pay cable. But mm-hmm. uh, the idea of taking those kinds of shows and putting it on an ad-supported, fully distributed cable network was kind of revolutionary at that point. And, and that is the thing that, you know, these guys should really get a, a massive amount of credit for. And what's also so remarkable is that at that moment, 2007, 2008, 2009, we're still ahead of where we are now with just a scripted glut. And it was very possible that TV writers, many of whom are brilliant writers, all of whom have passion projects, but also... I wouldn't say all, but close to all of them have uh, mortgages to pay and, and you know, and, and families to support. And so, you know, a, a unheralded, a relatively unheralded uh, staffer on a CBS sitcom named Becker maybe has a script called Mad Men in his drawer. Um, Vince That's Gilligan, true. who worked on X-Files, might have a passion project of his own that doesn't fit into a network's identity. Um, the fact that, that, that what's truly exciting to me about AMC in this period is that Mad Men almost went on HBO and then, and then didn't. And AMC was the network that stepped up and said, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it right. And you said you arrived right after that, so maybe you can talk more specifically about, I, I suppose Breaking Bad was in development at that point? No, no, Breaking Bad had aired. No, uh, uh, Did it debut in 08? Uh, Breaking Bad uh, was, uh, and again, forgive me because I can't remember the exact chronology, season one of Breaking Bad had aired uh, prior to my arrival because I had, I had right. watched both of them. Okay. Uh, and I certainly, whatever episodes I hadn't finished, I cleaned them up before I went in sure. and uh, interviewed for the job. Uh, even though it was a job I was convinced I wasn't going to get, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, but uh, Mad Men and Breaking Bad were both on the okay. air. And, you know, your question was my question exactly because, again, I'd, I'd kicked around the cable television space for a long time. Yeah. There was this sort of conventional wisdom, which is you identify your audience and you hyper focus on them and you super serve them. Right. That's Mm -hmm. what ad supported television is largely to this day. And premium television was, you know, uh, a a little more nuanced Mm -hmm. uh, programming that, you know, sort of correlates to a business model that's largely invisible. It looks very eclectic. But, of course, they're chasing demographic groups to... But they don't have to share them as much. And HBO's brand is prestige. That's right. We have the very best. That's right. And and, and that's what you're paying for. Yeah. But so when I showed up, you know, my first question was, you know, what does this roll up to and what's the play here? And, you know, the answer was, we believe that you know that that these kinds of distinct shows are the are the way to build a successful brand uh you know uh before anybody was talking about binging before anybody was talking about uh you know the kinds of engagement you know issues before there was even this mm-hmm. fixation on on serialized storytelling mm-hmm. and um so uh you know uh my the the biggest challenge for me was to figure out where to take that um, you know, and and the and the you know because again, if only you know the challenge was that easy. Right. Um, but you know, everybody who was there at the moment also realized that uh, okay, now you sort of you know have planted this flag, you've established this position. Good news: the first two shows that you've done, even at that point, were sort of so clearly, you know either you know going to be nominated or in the Hall of Fame someday. You yes. know, the brilliance of them wasn't totally abundantly clear it's a little easier in retrospect to go back and say you know genius and they both were um but you know we needed to also make sure that we uh we we grew and expanded in a way that grew the business because no one feels sympathy for lottery winners however i will say that the the challenge that that you and the network faced is pretty unprecedented because it is i'll say it again unprecedented for I wouldn't even say a rookie, just a a, a, uh, a walk-on to go to the All-Star game. You know, it, it, first two scripted shows out of the gate are Mount Rushmore shows. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you do? What were those challenges well, like? Well, it's daunting. I mean, it really was. Uh, you know, I was acutely aware uh, of, you know, sort of uh, from, from, from Jump Street that, uh, you know, uh, in some strange way, creatively... Uh, you know, I, we I was in a, a bit of a box just to talk about it on a personal level. Yes. 
um, you know, obviously I go to work every day and, you know, uh, and try and, you know, pull in the same direction as the company and try and build the company. But on a personal level, uh, you know, you do have stakes in this and, you know, uh, you know, you're identified with your body of work. And I thought, boy, that is a high bar to figure out how to follow. Um, so, you know, we, we, I, what I tried to do was bring a little bit more of a framework to the discussion. And, you know, we took that foundation, which was incredibly solid and incredibly important, um, and said, you know, okay, you know, there can be sort of a method to this madness a little bit. And, you know, we wrote some guiding principles, many of which are still in in, uh, use today. Can you give me one? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we talked extremely broad, but I'm really uh, a big fan of, you know, I'm a firm believer that most of these brands are way more flexible and elastic than, you know, most people give them credit for. There's a lot of dogma around, you know, the audience and what Mm -hmm. they will and won't tolerate. But, you know, I I, coming from the feature world, I kind of was oriented toward, you know, a wide range of storytelling anyway. So we talk a lot about being um, un uh, we talk about a lot about being unexpected, talk a lot about being unconventional. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Those two things are incredibly sort of general and simple words, but I'll just talk about them for a second. So unexpected simply means, okay, so your first two shows are Mad Men and Breaking Bad. There's not a lot of common thread between those two. And in fact, there wasn't a lot of commonality in the audience as much as we all sort of roll them up to, you know, uh, this group of shows that, you know, are on Mount, you know, the Mount Rushmore of television and the Hall of Fame, whatever the right metaphor is, uh, you know, very different audiences watching those two shows. So already we're deconstructing the entire paradigm of ad-supported television. Right. Not just different audiences demographically, but different engagement with the show. Right. the Breaking Bad fan is 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 ravenous, is 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 desperate for the next fix if you allow it. Right. And 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 you know I think there are some people who weren't paying close attention who maybe expected Mad Men to have a similar explosion in the last year, but they were always fundamentally different shows. Right. Uh, that's exactly right. So you know, unexpected just basically said, okay, if somebody's dealing you these cards. Uh, and they're great cards, you know, don't fold them, you know, embrace them and try and, you know, run, run, uh, you know, go on a nice little run with them. So, you know, if your last show was a contemporary drama about a, you know, a, a chemistry teacher who deals meth, the next one should be something completely different than that. And, you know, it just basically is a nice way of saying we should resist being formulaic at, at all possible you know, moments. Um, unconventional is was a nice way of saying, you know, when I showed up, I, I asked the team uh, what the filter was. And, you know, the, the answer is not an answer that is uncommon in cable. Mm-hmm. It was sort of no cops, no doctors, no lawyers. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I sort of am a, a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a mask. I love a good challenge. You know, I love to sort of challenge those kinds of conventional wisdoms. So I said, you know, really, we wouldn't do the shield. We wouldn't, you know, we, there, there's just no no scenario. You know, the Nick wasn't out there yet, but we wouldn't do the Nick. We wouldn't, or you know. Better call Saul. We wouldn't. Right. So uh, exactly. So I said, you know, let's let's re- rephrase that and let's just embrace this idea of unconventional, which is to say, if you find something that's in the crime space and there have been five million shows mm-hmm. that are crime stories, let's make sure it's one that we haven't seen before. And mm-hmm. so the killing, you know, came across our desk and, you know, because we had eliminated no cops, doctors and lawyers, but we were embracing things that were unconventional, you know, we bought the killing. Um, and you can, it's up to your podcast. You can, you can decide how much we want to go into the killing or not, but um, I, I have a no killing policy. There you go. Podcast. All right. Well, I, I am curious though, because, you know, um, my judgment on a lot of these shows is public and the public record looking back and let's, let's, carve The Walking Dead out of this because it is unique in every possible way. Um, how do you grade your those first few years because of development? You had uh, Killing, you had Rubicon, you had um, some things that didn't go, you had some frustrations. It's, you know, it did, were your expectations unfairly set by the incredible success you found? Because it's not, again, it's not just that Mad Men and Breaking Bad were so good. You found in Matt Weiner and Vince Gilligan, um, brilliant writers who are also capable managers and able to exact you know to communicate their vision which is a whole other skill set right um 
how would you grade those those post Breaking Bad years? I would say they were uh, you know mixed, and and I'd say uh, not not dissimilar to you know most people who are in my job, uh, even the ones who have you know uh, mm-hmm. achieved a certain level of success. Um, you know, uh, I'm ultimately I'm I'm incredibly proud of you know the track record as a whole, and and uh, you know I want to come back to the filter because there's one criteria that oh, you sure. know bears mentioning, but. You know, uh, uh, I was prepared for, uh, you know, uh, for for failure, really. I mean, as a movie producer, uh, I I never produced a giant hit. You know, I produced a movie called Rounders. The whole world went like, okay, who cares? You know, what's next? And, you know, 15 years later, it's a movie that, you know, has sort of found its cult audience. It's a classic now, but movies don't work the way TV does. It it lives and dies in the moment. Right. But, you know, all of which is just to say... uh, uh, you know, uh, Narnia was the closest thing I had experienced pre-AMC mm-hmm. to something that was really sort of, you know, meteoric success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and again, in the spirit of full disclosure, I was actually I uh, left Walden by the time the movie was released. I'd seen it through the, the early stages. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, uh, so uh, I, I did not walk in there thinking, you know, I have a magic wand. Anybody at AMC has a magic wand. And all we have to do is wave it and everything will come up, you know, like Mad Men and, and, and Breaking Bad. And obviously time has shown that finding the next Matt Weiner or Vince Gilligan is, you know, not just elusive. It, it You know, <laughs> they're I don't know where they where they are, you know, yeah. uh, and obviously there are some incredibly talented people. But, you know, that that is uh, sort of the holy grail. Right. I mean, you know, it's one other thing that came up in that period um is when both shows were up for renewal or renegotiation, there was some stuff that played out in the press, probably in a way that, that you probably didn't prefer it playing out that way. Um, I prefer nothing play out in the press. Exactly. Uh, there seemed to be, I think there's an LA Times story that I've linked to a number of times that suggested that, that Sony, which produced Breaking Bad, was because of a dispute over whatever it was, whether it was budgets or pay, was considering taking the show elsewhere for its final seasons. Uh, there was a long delay between Mad Men's season four Four and five, is that right? Uh, that sounds right. Again, Leading to yep, ultimately, right. Um, Matt Weiner got a three-year deal and or whatever it was, and finished the show for you guys on in very high fashion. Yep. What went on from your perspective during that period? Because it it did seem that the you guys got dinged in the press for that yep. because you were I'm not going to say single-handedly, but you were at the forefront of networks championing the auteur, the showrunner as artist, empowering the artist, look at the beauty that can happen. Now, I'm just a caveat here. I pay enough attention to TV to know that it is not really an auteurist medium. It is a full collaborative medium, and I'm sure Matt Weiner and Vince Gilligan would say the same thing. I would imagine they would. But, I mean... but the the narrative that was playing out in the press suddenly went from you guys empowered these artists to now you are feuding with them over you know, the most base of concerns, which is the filthy dollar. Right. Uh, well, so, yeah, I mean, it is a business and, uh, you know, um, I, uh, I, I, there is not enough time, you know, uh, in, in life to sort of go through all of the, uh, you know, the sort of details of those things. Um, but I will roll them up to a couple of basic principles. We were faced with some, uh, very real challenges about how to keep those shows mm-hmm. uh, on the air in a way that you know allowed us to continue to grow the business, um, which every business on the planet you know ha- has a mandate to do in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, you, I, you, you are not the De Medici Corporation. No, correct. Uh, uh, and to my knowledge, they're they're not looking either. But <laughs> uh, right. you know, um, it didn't end well for them anyway. So uh, <laughs> it's a good, yeah. another good point. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, so we had some challenges uh, and some growing pains for sure, uh, you know, many of which were around, you know, the business of being able to facilitate those shows writing to conclusion and um, and doing them in a way that, you know, that Matt and, and Vince had expressed uh, as their desire. Um, so, you know, most of the, the wrangling was, you know, was really you know, on the business level, um, you know, uh, I, I would just humbly submit. I'm sure I'm not the first person who sat in this chair and said, don't believe everything you read. You know, it is unless not, I wrote it, of course. It, right. You know, <laughs> present company excluded. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, and and I do think there was a little to your point, you know, you're you're um, generously, you know, sort of 
putting us in a group of people who were maybe, uh, you know, um, at the forefront of this, uh, you know, this thing that we now sort of call the golden age of television. I'm not even sure what that means, but it's a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I do think there was uh, a little bit of, you know, who are these guys and, you know, where did they come from? And, you know, where's the where's the the uh, you know, where's some of the dirt behind it? Because it can't just all be, you know, brilliance and and. Uh, you know, and Emmys. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing yeah. I, I want to talk about, and we can we can sort of weave it through the, the remainder of our conversation. But I've been very interested to note, and, and you and I talked about this when we sat down earlier in the year. But your your challenging of the conventional norms of development, um, and we can come back to what you're doing now, and I think that's very interesting. But I think it's possible to look at what you guys were doing in that period with what came to be known as Bake Offs, and we can talk about that sure. as part of this forward thinking, like how are we going to fix a system that most people agree is kind of broken? It's also possible to look at it at the moment you were doing it, and AMC's AMC's relationship with the larger business as sort of a threat, you know, Um, and that there were, during those years, like 10, 11, 12, what seemed to be some conflicts between the AMC channel as a business and the, you know, the not always virtuous, but portrayed certainly by people like me often as the virtuous aims of the creators. Um, is that a fair characterization of the way this narrative played out? Uh, it's certainly fair characterization of the way the narrative played right. out. Um, you know, what's the uh, counter to that? Right. So the counter is, uh, you know, um, y- you you surmise that uh, if Matt Weiner or Vince Gilligan were sitting here, they would cop to the the idea that this is an incredibly collaborative medium. I agree with that. Um, I'll take it a step further and say, uh, you know, show running. Uh, having now worked in uh, a, f- a fair number of buckets in mm-hmm. the you know in the in the content um, world, uh, running a show and particularly a serialized drama, I really believe is the hardest job in all of entertainment. Mm-hmm. I think I've never directed a two hundred million dollar movie. I never you know and let's take away executives because we all have it easier than the people who have to actually make stuff. Um, but in the world of people who make stuff, uh, you know, I really believe running a serialized drama yes. is the hardest thing that you can do. And it's the hardest thing you can do because it requires a completely uh, unique set of skills, some of which are in total conflict uh, uh, with each other. And and for which there really is, with the exception of the show running, you know, uh, programs that the Guild runs, um, you know, no place to really learn it. Yes. You know, where you learn to be a master of open-ended, serialized narrative storytelling, where you learn to be the manager or, as some would say, the CEO yes. of, you know, what could be a 20, 30 or, you know, more, you know, expensive per season a million dollar per season yes. venture um, where you learn to juggle uh, writing, prepping, shooting and posting simultaneously uh, and then sprinkle on, you know, the casting that happens on a regular basis and notes potentially coming yes. from a network and a studio, if that's the dynamic of the show there, you know, you're now you're down if you really are are, you know, uh, skimming off the people who are great at that. You're down to a very small number of people. There is no macro on Final Draft that teaches you how to do any Correct. of that. And so I say all that. I'm not evading the question. The answer is, um, you know, uh, not everybody's cut out for it. Yes. And so there was an enormous amount of um, uh, attention and a lot of stories about auteur showrunners. I actually take issue with that. I think it's actually a bit of a – I think the best showrunners – uh, and now there are some true auteurs mm-hmm. uh, who are literally really, you know, and are on a writing level doing everything. You have guys like Noah Hawley, uh, you know. And, or Louis you know, C.K. directing Pitts. and editing everything right. himself. You know, so there are a few. But but if you're and, – and, you know, again, we won't get into an argument about which shows are or aren't in the Hall of Fame. But many of the great scripted dramas – uh, from the last, you know, 15 years or so, you know, and whatever you want to throw in, you know, in history, anything that came before that would have come from this genuinely collaborative effort, this idea yes. that, you know, you have to begin with the notion that you can't get there without finding a room full of great writers and having, you know, a mm-hmm. great, you know, line producer. And so the pressure, but but the industry conspired to, and I really believe this, there was a moment where there was pressure to anoint yes. these new 
uh, this new generation of auteur showrunners. And the truth is, you know, you know, not all of them tr- turned out to be the thing. That's right. Some of them have since become incredibly talented showrunners and, you know, gone to school on their mistakes like we all do. Yes. Um, some of them were great right out of the box. But, you know, uh, but there was some failure and some bumps in the road along the way that, you know, ended up in the press. And and that's where the stories came from. I wonder if we look at... Um, uh so when I referred to the Bake Off, this was a period. I, did you do this for two years? We did it. I, I can't remember. We did it for a few years, probably. This was the idea that um, sort of going against the traditional development process, you, you you picked four or five potential shows, and then you had them put together a presentation um, and basically sell you on their longer-term vision than just the script for the show. Um, to look at it from a business perspective, this actually seems like a pretty smart way to try and take some of the uncertainty out of what is an incredibly expensive and uncertain business. But it does detract from this narrative that you and I are both sort of now chiseling yeah. at, which is that you know Matt Weiner saw a vision of a smoldering Lucky Strike cigarette in 2000, and he never quit until he got that cigarette lit on set at Silver Cup in 2006. Like, that it was a straight line of purity. But... TV, TV is not ever that straight line. Right. No, that's right. And the truth is, uh, you know, uh, if, if I, I shouldn't say it as truth, maybe I should just say my my uh, what I've learned is that there is really no perfect way to right. shepherd uh, a great idea, a great pilot script, whatever it is at that moment that it walks in the door. Um, to uh, something that is a brilliant, you know, piece of television. A lot of people are trying, ourselves included, and a lot of energy goes into trying to figure out how to do that. Uh, the Bake Off, as it was sort of unfortunately, uh, you know, called, um, came from a very simple desire early on to say, uh, you know, if you're developing CSI or, you know, any number of other shows that, you know, you'd put maybe in the procedural bucket or something that's not, you know, completely serialized, um, you know, a, a pilot and, you know, a, a pitch, a pilot script, a pilot, you know, all probably in the network world, you know, noted to death and, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, a, you know, a sort of very committee driven process were enough. Right. You know, so then you can look at that show and say, uh, it's good. It's mm-hmm. not or it's good enough or it's better than that one uh, and make decisions for us. You know, uh when when we realized that we were sort of you know more in the business of developing great novels mm-hmm. than TV shows, uh, you know we just decided that it would be ludicrous to not take that moment and and invite the showrunners in and have them share with us their longer term vision. The process needed refining. It was rough in the early days, and in fact we bumped a little bit because we asked people to do it and just. To be honest, we weren't compensating them, you know, in the beginning. So, you know, that's ancient history, and we corrected that immediately. Um, And uh, and by and large, you know, I think again, it 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 worked for us. Um, You know, it's not for me to say whether uh, it was uh, a process that you know um, was uh, friendly or not. We we read the tea leaves. We. You know, uh, and we try and be very responsive to the creative community. But, you know, you'd have to ask, you know, other folks what what they thought of it. But our our intention was not to, you know, exploit their time or their bandwidth. It was really to say, all right, the bar is Mad Men, Breaking Bad, The Wire, The Sopranos, you know, whatever the five or six other things. And and also informing the decision, I would imagine, just as much uh, was a show like Rubicon, which we touched on briefly, which to my mind had a absolutely brilliant pilot and i wanted to watch that show for years um I, we may disagree on the specifics of what happened after that but to my mind it it became a kind of different show and couldn't find that track again um and that experience had to have been as instructive to you in a lot of ways as the successes yeah it was hugely instructive there's nothing worse than making a great pilot and alan coulter you know directed a beautiful pilot and uh, i still think about the train the shot of the train is a beautiful yeah. shot uh, and uh, and 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 we're many of us. I can't speak for everybody, but I think there are a lot of fans out there of uh, you know sort of what you just lump into this general category of these you know conspiracy thrillers, particularly mm-hmm. the sort of holy trinity of them from the seventies. And uh, you know, um, and and uh, you know to go from okay, we kind of feel like we have it to 
oh my God, we're in the weeds. It's a very daunting moment, and mm-hmm. it's a moment that is highly instructive. Mm-hmm. So you can either say, well, that was an aberration, and we'll just, you know, jump back in on the next one, or you can say, let's adjust our process and do it differently. Sliding into a hypothetical universe for a moment, um, let's put Emmys aside, let's put the specifics of the shows aside. Do you prefer to work with someone who is as strong-willed and strong-minded as a Matt Weiner? And I say this, I've never met him, so I'm sure his the, the version of him that exists in my mind is probably not quite accurate. You have met him and you have worked with him. Do you prefer to work with someone who is that strong-willed and opinionated, or would you rather have a smoother running collaborative type machine or, is, or, or, or are both extremes so extreme that you can't, the reality exists between the two? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say, look, what I prefer is uh, to find people who I believe uh, genuinely or we collectively, I, I should really stop saying I because I mean, the things that I can... It's the authority theory of executive Yes, shift. exactly. I, uh, I could, I could you, see, you know, people who work for me, you know, reaching for the uh, the off... I want, I want people to listen to this podcast. So, <laughs> right. um, you know, we, uh, you know, I think are happy to find, uh, you know, genuine vision um, and a genuine voice and a genuine ability to uh, uh, dial into the kind of storytelling, you know, that, that we think is sort of part and parcel of AMC. Um, in any form. I mean, you know, uh, so the personal traits aren't really the, you know, the thing. Um, you know, I, I again, in, in however many years I've been doing this, you know, I've dealt with all kinds. We all do. And uh, so, you know, we're all in the talent business, right? You, you try and find great talent. And you know what talent entails often. Yeah, of course. What's something about Matt Weiner that people don't know? Like, what is, what is about working with him, he, something that does not come out in profiles of him? He's the best. Uh, or, you know, I'd say among the best because we've had the opportunity to work with. But, you know, that ship was so incredibly tight. And so I talked about this sort of weird, oddball set of skills that roll up yeah. to show running. Uh, I, I've never seen anybody, you know, um, really run a tighter ship. Um, you know, somebody who was as on top of all of the details as um, as as he is, you know, uh, and so and he yes, he would obsess over a cocktail napkin in the background, right? Yeah, is- allegedly. I mean, you know, I, again, I didn't spend a ton of time on the set of that show. I, you know, so I mean, uh, you know, but yes, obviously, his obsession, you know, with uh, detail, you know, was sort of legendary. Um, but you know, the 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 sort of, and again, I, I this is, I think, a, a really interesting uh, anecdote for for today's TV world. Matt Weiner and Vince Gilligan devoted themselves singularly for almost the entirety, or in the case of Vince, the entirety. You know, Matt took a break to do his movie mm-hmm. at some point. Um, for the entirety of the run mm-hmm. of those shows. That alone makes them still, to this day, a little unique in that world. You know, there's still this belief that it's something that can be done, you know, while you do something else. or. Right. We'll do two things, or we'll develop, right. but we'll be, and, you know. Um, I'll and, build my empire while I work on what got me here. Yeah, and, you know, uh, that 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 is, I think, uh, uh, something that, you know, you just have to be cut from a certain kind of cloth mm-hmm. to wrap your head around. It's not easy to say, mm-hmm. I am all in on this. The whole world at some point is knocking on your door, you know. I mean, Matt won the Emmy in year one of his show and then proceeded to win it, you know, I think three more times in a row, uh, you know, the, the potential for distraction is enormous. Yes. And how do you resist that? And, you know, and the fact that he said, Mad Men is my thing and I'm going to singularly focus on it has, I think, as much to do with his natural talent as anything. I wonder uh, if it has something to do also with the fact that, that, that Matt and Vince had had longer careers, so they know how ephemeral these things are. They know how rare they are, and they know how how much it demands. So they were able to calculate accordingly. Yeah. They weren't they weren't wet behind the ears kids out of film school. No, and they would certainly know what the sort of factory mentality yeah. for television looks like. Right, you know, uh, they know and, how to make twenty two episodes. Right, you know, they uh, and they know the luxury of not making twenty two episodes. Exactly, that's right. But uh, they they also knew, you know, look, uh, Matt. You know, uh, obviously, I think, you know, probably learned a lot from David Chase. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, Vince probably learned a lot from Chris Carter. Right. You know, good to find mentors like those guys along the way. Yeah, lineage uh, matters in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, you've given me a lot of time, and I, I don't want to – we have a lot more topics to discuss, so I, I want to move forward a little bit. Um, 
Walking Dead returns for its sixth season uh, this weekend. Um, just watched the season premiere. Was very impressed by it and the chances it took. Um, we could talk about The Walking Dead for an hour. I Bullet points here because it actually does in some way touch on the showrunner conversation that we just had. What did you guys see in this show that other networks didn't? Because like Mad Men and Breaking Bad, it was passed over by a few different places. Uh, and it was originally developed for broadcast. And when I had at NBC, at yeah. NBC, and when I had John Landgraf on the podcast, he's still kicking himself um, as he should be for this one. Um, did you have any idea it would reach? What was your ceiling? And then how? And then how quickly did it blow past? It? Well, this uh, is purely ratings, not creativity. Yeah, no. I mean, look. I before I get to that, uh, I mean, look. I'll answer that really. Uh, quickly, which is, of course, nobody ever allows themselves to believe that, you know, things could succeed you right. know, on that level. But the great part of the Walking Dead story for me relates to the last sort of uh, guiding principle that I, that I didn't ah. get to earlier. So here, this is, you know, we can now call that what happened back then an Easter egg. And here's the payoff. Yeah, this the, is good storytelling, yeah. by the way. This is good uh, pilot construction. We, I've learned a few things along the way. <laughs> yeah. you know, I've, I've, I've a jack from the best. So... Uh, the other thing that we talk a lot about, and again, it sounds so insanely fundamental, is this idea of looking for the passionate audience and particularly mm. the underserved passionate mm-hmm. audience. And, uh, you know, again, a, a conventional wisdom that had no place in ad supported television. Uh, but The Walking Dead is a direct result of, um, of a few things happening. Uh, before that ever walked into our world, uh, we looked at the uh, the movie performance, 20-some years of movie performance on the channel, mm-hmm. and you didn't have to be a genius to sort of see a big circle around October for what at that point had probably been 12, 13 years. We're in the yeah. middle of it now on our air. Uh, it was called Monster Fest for a long time. Uh, we changed the name to Fear Fest. Uh, uh, a stroke of genius that I will take personal credit for Good. for all the people I know who uh, for whom that made the world of difference um, and uh, and uh, see what happened when we put those movies on uh, you know not only did you get this incredibly consistent audience you got an audience that was younger you got an audience that was bigger mm-hmm. so you know back those, to that those are the two things all networks want exactly so back to that moment of you know you look at something see something that's interesting and then you know figure out how to execute like I said it doesn't take a genius to go we should look for something in that space um so we were on the lookout for something in the horror space for a while the walking dead uh i I mean the best thing i can say about why the walking dead resonated for me i wasn't familiar with the comics there were some uh folks on on the development team uh, a couple of whom were still there um who were uh, incredibly passionate about it uh they gave me the books to read on a plane and uh, the first thing I read uh, uh, was in in the first issue of The Walking Dead, there's a letter from Robert Kirkman. Mm-hmm. And to this day, it's the North Star for the series, and it's why I thought it could be a great television show. Um, and he basically says this is not, you know, a zombie story. This is a story about the, you know, the, the human condition. This is a story about survival. This is a story about uh, our station in society. There's even a line in there, I think, uh, forgive me, Robert, or anybody who, if I'm messing this up, I'm at least paraphrasing it, that says it's a story about how messed up we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, okay, that's an amazingly uh, sort of potent way in to a genre story. Um, and and, I, and I, I, I knew that I had not seen that on TV before. And neither had anyone else in this way. And so you immediately have this success that is rewrites all of the rewrites everything basically in the industry. No one knew that basic cable could attract these numbers. These this this age group with this passion with this intensity for this long. Uh, Sean Ryan, who created the Shield that we mentioned earlier, said to me very early on in my time at Grandland that for him that was the Jaws moment, where the '70s cinema of you know of, of the golden age that we just had suddenly transitioned to the blockbuster model and what had been the ceiling is now the floor and everything was going to be different. Um, One thing that that success, that rating success and the durability of that rating success seems to have have bought you and the people behind the show is a lot of wiggle room to figure things out along the way. There was some showrunner tumult around the third showrunner, Scott Gimple. That's right. uh, Who, to my mind, has really steadied the ship. I think his episodes have been by far the best. I'm curious about that, um, but I'm also curious about what else you can do within, if you have the success, if you just put the show, at this point it seems, honestly, if you put the show on the air and someone gets their face eaten, right. you're going to do a pretty good share. Um, 
what encouraged me about this season premiere more than any other was finally it seemed to me there was some creative risk taking to go along with the gore risk taking you know um the show can be anything yeah so i was kind of excited not that you should be listening to me because you have 20 million people watching it that that this drum I've been beating seems to have been picked up to some degree. You could do anything, so yeah. why not try? Well, the ability for that show to that show specifically to sort of evolve and become yeah. different things is really incredibly unique in the DNA of you know most storytelling. Um, so you know, uh, reductive and overly broad, but you know, uh, and we've been laying the groundwork for this, or Scott has been laying the groundwork for this for a while. But you know, this year I think we really sort of see. The, uh, you know, we, we went from zombies were sort of the threat to, you know, we're the threat, which was, again, a very potent yeah. uh, concept. And, you know, the introduction of the governor and some of those iconic characters. Uh, now we're moving into a phase where, um, you know, we're going to explore how insanely difficult building a civilization is. You know, I mean, that's a that's a very sort of rudimentary overview. But. Uh, you know, what a great thing to just be able to sort of take a show and really, uh, you know, uh, shift, you know, from, uh, you know, in terms of themes and, you know, what the essence of the story is. You know, most shows don't have that that level of flexibility. I have to I have a hundred follow ups, but I have to let you out of here soon. And so we have to go from the highest rate, one of the highest rated shows on TV to one of the more modest rated shows on TV. sure we're not TV. out of town? We're, uh, oh, no, this is a good one, though. I, I know where you're going. Uh for the last few years, you put on a show called Halt and Catch Fire uh, that is a fascinating case study to me about everything that's going on in TV. And I am really excited that I know, and by the time uh, people listen to this podcast, they'll know that you have decided to renew it for a third season. That's right. Which I'm thrilled about. That did not seem likely. Um, a couple questions, and we blaze through them as quickly as we can. Um, it's fascinating to me because... Point number one, it's an example. The first season to me seems to be a cautionary tale of you can have the best cast, the best idea, and a lot of great people behind the scenes. But if you, if you, if you don't have the parameters exactly right, you might not make the best version of the show. You also might not get an audience to check you out again. What you did with the second season was, I think, pretty remarkable. And I, I, I wrote about it, and I don't know if I've seen it done this way since. It's, to my mind, the best reboot essentially of a show that I've ever seen where you found the things that worked you elevated them specifically the wonderful women you had in the cast and focused on them um, it was a, to my mind it was a complete creative success and a 180 uh, buried within this non-question where I'm just complimenting you on this good show <laughs> are a hundred questions about the state of drama today and how you get an audience how you find a way to make the pieces work where you can have a show like Halt grow it because I'm convinced when you have five seasons of the show on Netflix it's going to find an audience but the economics are not built for you to fund the third season with those future profits. Can you, as the master president of AMC, distill <laughs> all of those ideas into an answer? That's my question. Uh, well, sure. I mean, look, you know, there, there, obviously there is a business model, uh, you know, uh, at play in all of television. It's not one single business model. There are many. Um, so, you know, your goal always is to start with something that's sustainable uh, without uh, having, uh, you know, uh, meteoric success attached to it. I mean, you know, you, you want to assume that, you know, you'll be one of the many shows that, you know, has to has to really work for it and yeah. tough it out maybe for a couple of seasons. So, you know, the first thing I would say is, you know, we've tried at AMC and we're certainly not the only ones to be as sophisticated as we can possibly be to build shows uh, that, you know, that, that we can now grow. Um, so, uh, you know, Mad Men and Breaking Bad, I think, you know, uh, some of the things you referenced, uh, you know, we wouldn't be talking about uh, if and you notice there isn't any of that discussion around Halt and Catch Fire. Right. We disappeared for a while. We had work to do to figure out how to get there between the second but, and the now third season. Yeah. Because, yeah. You went radio silent. Uh, I, I, I hoped for the best and silence actually felt positive in this case. Yeah. But I did not hold on to much hope. Yeah, but but unless everybody feels uh, like there's something incredibly dramatic about a bunch of folks sitting around sort of, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to get to a season three, you know, it was absent a lot of the, you know, the drama, you know, that that um, that, uh, you know, that that accompanied, you know, some of those early shows. And that's because it was built originally to be a show that didn't need to be fantastically successful from a ratings point of okay. view to keep going, because that is I do I think part of now what we try and offer we don't always get there we've canceled some shows but we've also kept 
you know, a number of shows going uh, in the face of, uh, you know, not enormous ratings. Um, and I, I, You found a way to make them work for you. Yeah, that's right. Well, we just renewed Turn, right. uh, you know, not, not that long ago as well. Uh, you know, s- similar story. With um, Halt, can you just describe the, the conversations? Because it does seem to me that there were a lot of people who wanted the best to work out I, I, on all sides. But the fact that you were able to get there... How did that happen? Well, the first component is, you know, creatively, do we have something that we truly believe in? Because, you know, that that really does still, I know it sounds cliche, but that does drive everything. And without that belief, and it's not always there, uh, you know, there, there's really no basis for the discussion. In this case, we were massively impressed with the uh, creative team uh, behind that show's ability to take some constructive criticism from season one because we all had it nobody would sit here and say season one was the perfect iteration of that show um and and reboot it in a way that is really not easy you know shifting the focus it's almost never done right it's almost never done and it's not done because it's you know uh again you know there's a lot of of for lack of a better word fallout from those kinds of things you know yes it's very delicate and uh so um you know, obviously, you know, that that's really the, the, the main, you know, the main criteria. Um, and if you've built the show properly on a business level, then you can say yes to something that, that isn't blowing the doors off. You know, you asked a bigger question about what the model is for, yeah. you know, uh, drama going forward. It's... I, I, if you have anybody on this podcast who has the answer to that, I, you can please drop me an email. I'll make sure and listen. Um, it just seems like everyone's trying to make it work. You know, and my, one of my other favorite shows is The Americans, which has well, not been gotten the Emmy nominations it deserves. Right. It does not get the audience it deserves, but they protect it. John Landgraf and FX protect it. They've somehow made the economics work for them. Right. They're going to continue it to tell its story with the idea that that has value. And that's the flip side of the conversation we were having about, you know, negotiating in public. This is this, the business side actively advocating for the creative side. Yeah, I mean, it's a Fox studio, one of the Fox studio entities right? and a Fox network. Um, you know, that that helps, right? Yeah. That That is part of uh, insulating against, you know, um, the need for, you know, massive rating success. Uh, but, you know, the, the Americans to me is a fascinating case study. I love the show, too. And um, and and of course we have no idea what uh, the the real numbers are behind right. nonlinear consumption of those shows, or at least nonlinear on non-measured platforms. Right. Nice way of saying you know the the streaming services. Um, and it's a it's a really enormous question that everybody is struggling with in terms of uh, you know was what happened, uh, and I'll use our own two shows. They're not the only ones, but was what happened with Mad Men and Breaking Bad with respect to the mm-hmm. uh, the the sort of um, relationship between linear and nonlinear, uh, you know, a, a moment in time that now has sort of somehow morphed into something, you know, a little more utilitarian or, or was or is it is it just that, you know, that cycle has not found its next, it's- uh, you know, perfect uh uh, you know, storm to 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 push those viewers back to linear. Um, you know, Americans has been flat for I don't track it. You know, yeah. week by week, but I think essentially it's been sort of hovering around where it's been. Yes, it hasn't changed at yeah. all. Um, sorry to cut you off. I, I, okay. I a couple things to bang through before I promise I'll let you go. Um, in terms of halt, the announcement will be out by the time we talk about this. Have, will that announcement include anything about who will be running the show? Because I believe Jonathan Lisko has moved on to his own show, Animal Kingdom. He, cast returns anything like that uh yeah well the the uh people who created the show that show was a a, bla- a, a script uh, by a couple of guys Chris and you Chris, know, right right can't want rogers great young writers uh jonathan lisco was brought into showrun he has moved on so uh happy to announce or it'll be uh, old news by the time this airs that uh, those two will uh step up and run the show great which is uh you know that is a that is a great uh, sort of story for us, um, you know, uh, instead of taking them and saying we're all in on two guys who had never had anything yes. produced before the show and, you know, believing that their vision supersedes everything else that's inherent in running a TV show. Those two guys accepted somebody like Jonathan Lisko. Jonathan Lisko was also the right guy. So mm-hmm. making these marriages very difficult. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the the. Uh, that's a that's a great success story for us to take them that's terrific move them from you know creators and you know uh writers and you know producers to to showrunners and the cast intact yeah terrific yeah. um 
I, we're not going to have time to do this. This will be a separate podcast. I wanted to talk to you about Sundance TV and the incredible shows you have on that network, Deutschland 83, one of my favorite things of the year. Great. Any it's news on Deutschland 86 or not uh, yet? No, you know, I, and again, I, I hope, I, I think I've gotten through this without saying anything massively erroneous. I think it hasn't, it hasn't aired, aired in Germany. In Germany right. So, uh, you know, we are uh, uh, sort of the U.S. broadcaster on that show. We're not fully in control of its destiny, but uh, but we love having it on our air. We love being one of the few places, uh, again, particularly probably the only ad-supported place that is running uh, foreign language uh, programming. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, we'll see. But uh, Deutschland was, you know, definitely something we all we all love. We just had a couple of big announcements at MIP this week about a uh, an Irish series called Rebellion and a really fantastic series called The Last Panthers. Um, I mean, with the stuff you've been putting on the last few years with Rectify and Honorable Woman, some of my favorite shows, uh, uh, Top of the Lake, uh, which now there'll be a, uh, Lizzie Moss said in this chair, Top of the Lake 2 exists. Top of the Lake 2 is coming back. We're, we're working on it. Uh, you know, uh, um, but uh, yeah, with uh, with some other you know uh, talent as well. And and um, last two things: uh, Better Call Saul season two in production now. Uh, uh, deep in production, uh, within spitting distance of the uh, end of season two uh, on a production level. Thumbs so. up, thumbs down. You're excited? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I I mean, again, we didn't get to it, so you know, now I'd like to stay another. Uh, originally, when I sat down, I thought this can't be over soon enough, but I'm I'm here. I'm in my comfort zone. Let's keep going. I charmed you. Yeah. Uh, no, it's great. Yeah, they've done a great job. And uh, the, any of the Mad Men spinoffs that I've been pitching in my columns have any of them landed? Uh, the Sally Draper and you know Downtown. 81 <laughs> pitch. Were, were you going to go with any of these? Uh, n- n- none to my knowledge. <laughs> okay. That would be Matt's ball to uh, pick up and run with. So uh. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Joel, you've been more than generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I hope that you will be able to come back at some point to tell music video stories and to get deeper into the business of what you're doing, um, pilot development going forward, the way Sundance exists as a counterpoint to the, some of the bigger ticket stuff on AMC. It's a very fascinating time, and, and you're steering one of the more interesting ships. So thank you very much for well, being here. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.